If you're looking to sell your private company's stock, SharesPost has a solution for you. With more than $4 billion in company-approved transactions, SharesPost is the leading marketplace for private company shares. To learn more, go to sharespost.com equity. TechCrunch is back in San Francisco for our flagship event, Disrupt SF. We've got a fantastic lineup of startup and tech leaders on tap, like Snapchat's Evan Spiegel, Postmates' Bastian Lehman, Salesforce' Mark Benioff. Plus, you can experience an entire track of how-to content to help you grow your business. Hear from experts at Bumble, Fitbit, Uber, Goldman Sachs, YC, and more. Also, we'll be recording a very special episode of Equity right in the middle of Startup Alley. Get a ticket now and come enjoy all the goodness. And if you act now, you can save another 20% by using promo code equity. Just visit techcrunch.com slash disruptsf. Hello and welcome back to Equity, TechCrunch's venture capital-focused podcast. I'm TechCrunch reporter Kate Clark, and I'm joined this week by my co-host, the editor-in-chief of Crunchbase News, Alex Wilhelm. How's it going, Alex? Uh, it's very, very good. As promised, we are back here as a group in TCHQ, and we are drinking coffee because it is yes. the earliest equity that I can recall. It is, uh, it's like 9 o'clock in the morning on Thursday, and so instead of us being kind of our peppy selves, we shall be soporific and, and dull, I think is the goal. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Uh, we're excited today because... Mamoon Hamid from KP is here. Mamoon, thank you for coming on. Hey guys, excited to be here. And uh, by KP, Alex means Kleiner Perkins for those who are not, not Kaiser familiar Permanente. with these acronyms. Good point. Uh, good point. Also, uh, not KPCB. I feel like you know, people have dropped yes. the rest of the acronym as time has, has gone along. Um, good to have you here. We have our weekly fun fact about our guest, which is that Mamoon wanted to be an astronaut, uh, which I think is like an okay cliche for a child to dream for. I think I wanted That's... to be a fighter pilot, which is a similar sort of aspiration. Yeah. Policeman, fireman in my era, you know, growing up in the early 80s, mm-hmm. astronaut was it. I wonder why that's, that's dropped off. There was some information out recently that uh, more kids in the U.S. want to be YouTube stars than astronauts these days. And I think that's an interesting... Probably uh, more lucrative to be a YouTube star these days than to be an astronaut. Yeah. Well, someone just said last week that it's pretty dumb if you want to be an astronaut. So maybe that's why <laughs> kids don't want to be astronauts anymore. I mean, look, I don't want to be left on Mars to die, but we're a little bit off topic, so we're going to bring it back and uh, talk about some breaking news, actually, which is this morning, uh, the omnipresent unicorn Airbnb filed, or sorry, put out a press release that said, Kate, um, Mm -hmm. they announced today that it expects to become a publicly traded company during 2020. Right. So kind of oddly worded and and certainly vague, but it does come come one day after they had filed um, another press release saying that they brought in um, significantly more, I think they said, than $1 billion in revenue in Q2 of 2019. Yep. So showing off a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and my question, Mamoon, is is this them teeing themselves up for a direct listing? I feel like they're starting the press cycle early, get the buzz going, get the media to talk about it. You know, here we are. Um, feels like a direct listing kind of in the offing. What do you think? Yeah, I'm not sure if Airbnb needs a lot more press. Uh, and press in the sense that, well, good press. I mean, they're a great company, been around for over a decade. A lot of us use it. Love the product. Uh, it's actually really well suited for a direct listing, given given the uh, halo the company has with uh, as a consumer brand. Uh, but yeah, it could be, could be. Uh, but twenty twenty is still far out. I mean, mm-hmm. you've got you know still a dozen or plus more companies lined up to go public this year, and uh, you know um, they've got a year plus to go direct listing or IPO. It does feel like kind of a loose band of time. They're not saying in the first half of next year, they're saying sometime next year we'll probably do it. Why can't they just do it now? Well, so I don't know if you saw this morning, but Dan Premack had written a story about how a bunch of VCs, Michael Moritz and Bill Gurley, are 
gathering at some hotel in San Francisco yep. to evangelize direct listings. Are you um, very much pro direct listings in the same way or how do you feel about them in general? Yeah, um, I am pro just having gone through that process with Slack Yeah, uh, and uh, believing in the direct listing model for not just for companies like Slack and Spotify and Airbnb, like household names, but also for a longer tail of companies. So uh, I think uh, our industry is really very much getting behind this, uh, the notion of uh, more of our companies going the path of direct, direct listing. Mm-hmm. Before we uh, talk about WeWork, because something hilarious happened yesterday that I'm very excited about. Uh, the direct listing front to me makes a lot of sense if the companies in question, the batch of firms that we're talking about, are either very close to profitability or have so much cash in the books already, they don't need to probably raise again uh, to reach either cash flow break even or something close to kind of like EBITDA break even, whatever. But a lot of firms, I think, uh, that are unicorns today have been so fueled by late stage capital that they are not uh, profitability focused. And therefore, I'm curious if a direct listing, which is a non, uh, you know, uh, cash generating event, is going to be as good a fit as we sometimes think. Because I think a lot of these firms will need more money. Yeah, you make great points, uh, Alex. Uh, so yeah, companies that need to raise, you know, three, four billion dollars in, in an IPO uh, probably don't make a good fit. Um, mm-hmm. The case in point would be a, a WeWork or an Uber yeah. or anything that's uh, super capital intensive, uh, and that's actually. I would say the minority of companies that go public. Uh, it's not um, when you're raising billions of dollars. Uh, but if a company is raising um, 100 million, 200 million, I mean, that's like, you know, chump change on the private markets these days. So, uh, and you can raise that pre-direct listing in a, in a snap. Oh, I see. So you raise maybe another 100 or 200 million and then you can direct list. Totally. Get, and then the pricing, oh, okay. That makes more sense to me. Yeah. So if you're if you're about that far away from being self sufficient, you can just raise that from I don't know Vision Fund two or you know or you the dozens of other who will write fifty hundred million dollar right. checks times like ten investors will say you know what we used to buy the stock in the public market or the IPO we're just gonna do that like a month prior as a pub- private company Fidelity T Rowe Templeton I mean the list goes on totally. and on you, and on you got it. All right, uh, WeWork is, uh, is back in the news because its IPO is, uh, as we all know by now, going to be delayed until uh, late October at the earliest, I think was the last thing that I read. I think it's, I think it's probably more than, more than a few months away at this point. I, I think that's valid. Um, but the reason why I wanted to talk about it today on the show is there was a great article in the journal yesterday uh, detailing a number of uh, interesting facets from the WeWork history. Uh, stories about like tons of weed on a plane that had to be sent back. Um, how Adam Newman wanted to become a trillionaire and like run for president of the world. <laughs> there was, there was just this, this amazing list of things. Like one time they laid off a bunch of the company and then had someone from like, uh, was it run DMC kind of come out and do a song about that. And then pass out <laughs> tequila shots, like tone deaf things that just made me giggle. It, 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 the joke is like, it feels like Silicon Valley, the show, but writ life. Um, were we shocked by the stuff we read yesterday? Uh, no. I mean, I thought it was a great story. So it's from Elliot Brown in the Wall Street Journal, kind of a profile, Adam Newman. He didn't actually, I don't think, speak to Adam Newman, but talked to a ton of former, former employees of WeWork to paint a clear picture of Adam Newman's character. I think he's already known for being a pretty eclectic CEO, and people are kind of questioning how he will handle being CEO of a public company. Certainly, he doesn't have the persona you'd expect to see. I think at this point, it's, it's probably only hurting him. I, I don't think what the skills that got him so much success in the private markets, which was access to capital, ability to retain and hire talent, uh, to scale revenue, and to really get people from uh, multiple parts of the economy to believe in him, translate as well into the public markets. And we're seeing that translation error happen. Um, 
and I think it's an argument for uh, professional CEOs to some degree. I mean, I think back in the old days, remember when uh, Google had to hire someone, an adult to come in? Eric and, Schmidt. And, and how did that work out, Mamoon? I think it went pretty well. Pretty well. Yeah. And at so, some point, you know, uh, yeah, Eric Schmidt came in. I think he did it really well for a decade. I mean, Dara's doing it right now at Uber. So uh, you've got a professional CEO who uh, is doing a lot of making hard decisions, uh, how to get that company to be profitable. Uh, WeWork has to go through the same thing. If you're spending $2 to earn a dollar, uh, that's a hard business. And that's that scale. That's that, mm-hmm. you know, uh, I think they generate about under $2 billion of revenue and generate about $4 billion of, of losses. <laughs> and uh, it's hard to, you know, and that requires a lot of cash. And hey, like... Adam and that team has built the beautiful product. You always wonder, it's, it's so nice. It's too nice. And uh, someone's got to be paying for it. Well, mm-hmm. WeWork's paying for it. Uh, and it's, it's not totally sustainable. I did go to the nicest WeWork in the entire world in Salesforce Tower recently. Have you been? It's on like the 27th floor or something. No, but now I really want to go. What, what about it blew your mind? The view. I mean, I, I, like, they cl- clearly it was an expensive um, rent to have. It was just like a sweeping view of the city. It was one of the best views of San Francisco I've seen. I happen to know how much real estate costs in that building per square foot per year. And uh, I'm just doing math in my head about how much you have to rent desks for to make that. Yeah. That's yeah. Not I cheap. would yeah. highly question anyone who rents in that building. I mean, it's, it, yeah. in fact, actually, uh, it, I was reminded, I've never actually been to WeWork for a meeting in my life. I think I just had my first WeWork meeting. I, yeah, I don't frequently like have I, them. I, at I don't all. have any companies that I've ever mm-hmm. met at WeWork or that we've had a meeting, like a board meeting. Like I actually don't know any one of my companies that has ever situated themselves in a WeWork uh, where we're like, hey, uh, can you come meet us at our WeWork mm-hmm. or like we're looking at a company? So maybe it's self selection. Uh, one is the number of times I've done that. It was a company that competed with Twilio and ended up selling for a couple hundred million. Their US office was in a WeWork. So I went to one okay. to meet the CEO. Perfectly fine, but like once is the. Yeah. This is getting off topic, but did you guys see the um, picture of the umbrella that got stuck in the WeWork office door? And then the employees. I love it. It was so <laughs> funny. You guys, if you're listening, you've got to look it up. It's like an umbrella got stuck in the door and no one in there could figure out how to open the door because there was an umbrella stuck in it. So the office, this little tech company got closed for like two or three days and no one thought to, I don't know, just kick the they thing just, in. Yeah, they were just it, it, It's the out. best laugh I've had this week, <laughs> to be honest. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, we all deserve one of those. Getting back on topic, um, you did mention Uber, and I think there are a lot of similarities between kind of what happened with Travis Kalanick at Uber and with um, Adam Newman at WeWork, just in terms of the fact that I think they both um, kind of were able to ride really high off the fact that there's so much support from VCs for the founder. There's this cult of the founder um, that we talked a bit last week about because we spoke about Mike Isaac's book, which is about Uber. And, and I think the main theme of his book is that um, it, is what Travis was able to get away with just because, um, you know, he was the founding CEO and he was. He was so essential to the company. And uh, I think that Adam has um, presented himself in the same way. Like, remember when, when he, uh, in, in the original S1 filing, mentioned himself, what was it, 47 times or it was something? an insane yeah. number of times. Yeah, and Adam. just uh, technically, he was not the founding CEO of the company. Of WeWork? Oh, oh uh, yeah. you mean Travis? Travis was. Right, Ryan, Ryan, Graves, Ryan Graves. Yeah, Ryan, yeah. Was, yeah. Yeah, Ryan yeah. Graves was CEO for yeah. like what? How? Yeah, and just uh, actually the, the point of like the, the, the cult of the founding yeah. CEO, I think just to, on that point that you make, um, I think we've, just glorified that so much in, in especially in the, the last decade. Um, it's, um, it's, it's a little too much. It gets to the head. Uh, and if you have, you amplify the, whatever it is that drives a Travis or a, an Elon or a right, Adam. Right. And it's, it's, um, they're great visionaries and 
But at the end of the day, it, it's great when you have open capital markets and you have uh, abundance of cash. Uh, but we haven't seen the lack of abundance of cash in the last decade. So when the times get tougher, those CEOs don't really do that great. Right. They, they built this uh, ethos, this, this movement on access to lots of capital to do big things, splashy things, loud things that we all read about in the media. But it's hard to do that when all of a sudden you have to crack down on costs mm-hmm. and pay more attention. Question, though, because you invest at, at roughly the Series A stage, give or take. Um, and so you're definitely working with founders that are still probably in that seat, often probably being the CEO. Do you encourage people to go out and seek um, external talent to bring in, to bring in uh, business acumen experience and like people that have done things like set up a corporate OKR strategy, you know, stuff that often uh, younger founders and new CEOs haven't done? Absolutely. Uh, maybe just uh, think I've invested in about 25 companies where I've been on the board. Um, I've at this point, I think, 23 of the 25 are still CEOs. Okay. Um, and so I, I believe in the, oh, not the cult of the founder CEO, but like I believe in the founding CEO concept. And uh, because trying to find uh, someone who's not the founding CEO as a CEO is a really hard job for someone like, uh, like me or an investor board member. Uh, so uh, highly try to optimize for people who can go the distance. And so how do you help people go the distance? You, you, you arm them with the tools, but you also surround them with the people that can help, uh, help them thrive. So give you a quick example. Uh, Aaron Levy hired, uh, Dan Levin, uh, uh, Dan Levin was, uh, at Intuit for like 15, 20 years, ran QuickBooks mm-hmm. and he was an operational guy. He learned from the school of Intuit how to build a business. And so he had m- most of the company reporting to him when, mm-hmm. you know, when, and Aaron was doing all the visionary stuff and all kinds of other stuff, customer, and uh, maybe even some product from design. But Dan had most of the most of the team reporting mm-hmm. to him, and that is not uncommon uh, in in companies where you've got this visionary CEO. So you have to, as as board members, really make sure you're 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 watching for the blind spots of these uh, these amazing founding CEOs, uh, and help them you know become more operational or not. Yeah. You know, let them spike on the visionary stuff and uh, let someone else come in and help them with the the execution stuff. Yeah, I mean, there was a time period back in I think twenty. 14, 2015, when Aaron Levy was ubiquitous. Yeah. This was before Box went public. Oh, mm-hmm. Aaron Levy is the CEO of Box, yep. still to this day. Um, and there's no way he was taking all the meetings required to run that company's day-to-day minutia and also going to every single conference in the world. Well, doing a good job, I think, evangelizing mm-hmm. the then uh, private company's uh, name. So what, what responsibility do you think VCs have if they do have a CEO that's clearly un- unable to do their job? I mean, I know you just said, you know, you might encourage them to hire some outside talent to take over, but... Uh, beyond that, I think if in the cases of like Travis and Adam and also much less publicized cases, uh, what should a VC do in that situation? Well, in the case of Adam and Travis, those are like the complete outlier cases of right, like of building a, a 50 billion R company and we don't know um, what WeWork's going to be worth. Uh, but these are complete outliers, right? In terms of, and if you are a VC who's in early stage, you're, you're just, you kind of won the lottery. You know, if your company's worth 10, 12, 15, and you came in at, you know, 50 million, 50 million, yeah. like you're like, you're not asking too many questions really. And okay. that's, you're that's 200 X at that point. So, yeah, we, and that's the issue is that, you know, you, you kind of let some of the, the behavior just roll, roll because these are the people who are just going to make you just a ton of returns. And, uh, that's part of the issue is like, so then the moral authority of, uh, does it rest on people who come in at, let's say, um, the, uh, in the case of Uber, it's like, I think TPG and Google came in and, you know, their cost basis is 4 billion now and they have board seats and they, 
you know, in, in these hot companies, you actually don't give up board seats these days. So that's part of the problem is that when things get so hot, like nobody has moral authority anymore over what's, what's right in terms of uh, who should be CEO because uh, these CEOs are the ones making everyone so wealthy. Right. It's hard to argue against something when that thing is making you your paycheck. There's yes. a better quote that I'm butchering there, but that's the idea. <laughs> Hey everyone, don't forget this episode is brought to you by Shares Post. Let's let's pivot away from uh, early stage founders to early stage uh, VCs. News out this week that Aspect Ventures is going to cleave itself into two and become uh, on one hand Owl Capital and on the other hand an early stage firm called Accru. Uh, Kate, how familiar with Aspect were you before this dropped? Um, yeah, I was definitely familiar with Aspect Ventures. Um, Jennifer and Teresa, I think um, you know some some of the top venture capitalists. Um, they started this firm, I think, maybe four or five years ago. So it's not, it's certainly not um, an old firm in the Valley by any means. But um, just to provide a little more detail, Jennifer is going to, like as you said, create Owl Capital, which will be enterprise and digital health. Um, Teresa is setting up a, an early stage firm called Accrue. And I'm not exactly sure what she's going to be focusing on. Perhaps it's more of a generalist fund. Well, I know that Accrue is be larger. So Accrue is aiming to raise 175, whereas Owl is only going to raise about 125. Okay. And it doesn't sound like a huge amount of money that's different, but I think the reason they're divvying up, if you will, is they have different goals about what they wanted to build. One wanted to build a much larger firm. One wanted to build a more small boutique firm. Um, and you so a bit probably- of a, Yeah, a bit of a misalignment there of sort of the expectations. Um, I had also heard, slash, you know, I read in a story that covered this, that... Um, when they first set out to raise the fund at the time, four or five years ago, it was much harder to raise a venture capital fund as a solo female GP. So I think they, they, they were like, well, let's go into business together. Perhaps both of our reputations stacked. We can we can do this. And now, you know, the, the climate around women venture capital has changed, you know, somewhat. I think they feel they could go off on their own. But I think that boils down to the fact that they just weren't in agreement about what where to take the fund moving forward. Yeah. So, but my fear when I read about this, or like the the uh, DCVC's new fund yesterday, which is like seven twenty five, seven fifty, their largest fund ever. Uh, these are often people that I've met and are often people that are cool. They're raising larger and new funds, as you said, 11, 12 years into this business cycle. And I'm just fascinated by how a lot of these new bets by LPs are going to generate returns over the next 10 years. Because as we've all seen by watching the news, uh, there's a lot of global uncertainty out there, economic slowdowns, trade problems, tariffs. It's, it's a fascinating macro moment to be raising targeted new funds. And uh, I would be worried, but that's why I'm not an LP. So. Well, LPs are getting a lot of money back right now and they have to invest it somewhere. And um, when you show up with the, uh, a fund that's performed well, uh, then, and you tell them that you want to raise more money, they, they give you a bit more money. And then you go from 500 to 725. So uh, just natural yeah. consequences of the environment. Are LPs right now, as a general class of folks, content with their cash-on-cash returns from their VC exposure, do you think? Well, uh, LPs are open for business, which means that they are content. Right. Uh, and they believe that the, uh, the upside generated by some of these outlier-type companies has uh, done well for them in their portfolio. And it's, um, you know, it's, it's a small percentage of uh, endowments, uh, but that small percentage can be dramatic in terms of returns to these endowments. Um, I have two things. Um, one, um, 
Did you guys see the story and the information about Andreessen's returns? Because I thought that was pretty interesting. Of course I did. Did you? Yeah, I really appreciated some of the Twitter commentary. People like people are like, all these VCs are so scared now that people are going to get a hold of their returns and publish them in stories like that. I mean, I mean, if a firm just to pick one out of thin air, like I don't know, Kleiner Perkins wanted to share its <laughs> returns with journalists. I don't know, like you and I. Perhaps. I, I would. I would. Yeah. Take I them. mean, that would be a fascinating Tuesday. Um, uh, if you didn't read the story, though, the information at Great Pub uh, had a, a grip of varying uh, historical notes from Andreessen's returns. Their early funds were fantastic, generating very, very high IRR, and some of their more recent funds have struggled a bit. Jason Limkin, uh, a regular guest on this show, pointed out to me on Twitter that uh, there's a time lag to VC returns. Totally. And so if Fund right. 5 is showing negative 7%, yeah. give it time. What did you think? Yeah, I, I, the, the first fund uh, is, is exceptional, and uh, I think you know the subsequent funds have companies like Airbnb and... Uh, uh, Pinterest and uh, I mean, just, the list goes on of yeah. great companies backed by Andreessen Horowitz. So uh, I, I think it's just a time lag issue. I don't, I, I uh, there's a lot of skeptics uh, about like, you know, they paid high prices on these companies and since, and hence their returns won't be great. Um, I, I think it's just more of a time lag thing. And, uh, and it's also how you value companies on your books. Uh, uh, many firms don't mark their value, uh, valuations to market. So there's not, not a mark to market, but it's a more of a gap accounting. And so, uh, and it's a fairly conservative approach and it's just the approach that we take at Kleiner Perkins as well. So I'm not surprised, uh, that the numbers are, but I still expect them to be like top decile quartile. Well, uh, to be fair, uh, Andreessen is known for spending a lot of money on deals, but that was the most subtle diss I've ever seen on the show. <laughs> they are known for <laughs> spending a lot of money on deals. Well, I think, no, I think we've talked about it a lot in this show that we hear that um, in the market. One other comment I wanted to make, I think a lot, some VCs I was talking to recently about a couple of these new funds. Um, you know, there were a bunch of fund announcements this week. A four capital has a new fund, B capital. Some of these big ones, it oh. was bigger. So they were saying like, well, it seems like there's these arbitrary huge raises uh, because the, the VCs just want that bigger management fee. So, I mean, for people who don't really know, like all, all venture funds, you get typically a 2% management Correct. fee. So if you raise a billion dollar fund, you know, you 20 make, million a year. Exactly. I mean, obviously split amongst the partners, but still not bad. I think every VC who's out there collecting their, their uh, management fee as their main source of remuneration will be out of business in five years. Absolutely. This is, this is a long game. Uh, yeah. If, if that's how you want to make your living, uh, your firm will not be around for very long. And we shall laugh at you we're going to do when exactly. you don't raise a second fund yeah it's obvious when this doesn't work out like the fund dissolves after a couple of funds uh, let's talk about uh some early stage stuff we have had uh some emails from y'all and we are thankful for them they're often polite some of them are not but hey what can you do uh, and we're going to bring in some early stage topics that we think are fascinating including uh one of the coolest things that i've read lately from kate about uh a d2c review startup that began as an instagram page it still is. It's still an Instagram page. It's still an Instagram. Yeah. Page. So this um, the Instagram is called Thing Testing. Um, you can you can look it up. It's cool. It's cool. Follow this woman just raised three hundred thousand dollars. So very small pre seed round to create more of a platform. She said that she wants to make a Rotten Tomatoes for direct consumer brands. So people have an idea of what products are good. So she reviews stuff like Casper mattresses. She reviews House, that new aperitif, which I always say that wrong. Aperitif. Aperitif. Yeah. That new Aperitif brand. She's reviewed Birchbox. She was reviewed AirPods, which are not D2C, but I think that, you know. And um, she just all, she's just covering the whole market because there are tons of D2C brands launching all the time. And it is actually quite difficult to know if the products are total crap or if they're actually good. Like, I don't know if you guys have followed Pattern, formerly Gin Lane. 
that. Yeah, we're it, investors. Yeah. So they, I just, I just followed their Instagram and it's so funny because they're behind like all of these, they do all the marketing and pro, um, advertising. Hims and like uh, other brands. I don't but the thing is, and they, they're great. Like they're probably, I mean, the best as far as branding, but I think sometimes branding can just make you feel like the product is great and then it's shit. And this is not about Gin Lane, but I'm just saying that can they can really- What is Gin Lane? Are they a marketing Gin, firm? Gin Lane used to be a marketing firm that did uh, the, the marketing packaging, the go-to-market for things like Hims. Yeah. And they were just exceptional at it. And they're yeah. like, hey, why don't we do that? Apply it to products that we think uh, there's a void for in the market, D2C products. And their first product is called Equal Parts mm-hmm. Cookware Company. Okay. Cookware product. Yeah, I was just looking at Equal Parts Instagram this morning. I mean, they, these guys are so good at the branding. It's it's almost like. Yeah. Uh, so the question now yeah. is, the product any good? Yes, right? exactly. I think that's the. I think what you're getting to is like right. we see all these beautiful, pack, beautifully packaged products. Mm-hmm. They look great on Instagram. You get them home, and it's just, uh, yeah, I'd rather just go buy my stuff at Walmart again. Right. 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 Exactly. Like, I mean, I like plenty of direct to consumer brands, um, but. I certainly am skeptical of trying out a lot of them too, because I'm like, eh, is it going to just be, is it going to be packaged really lovely and then ultimately fall apart like right away? I feel like I'm, I'm out of the loop on this because I'm not on Instagram anymore. I feel like that I'm missing that important like brand vector into my you life. You don't see all those ads that Instagram provides to you on a daily basis that show all these beautifully photographed photo uh, mm-hmm. products that once you get in your hand, you're like, oh my God, why did I buy these, this, this shoe or these, this t-shirt or this, I also hate shopping because I just, I'm lazy. Yeah. But I, so a question about this D2C boom, yeah. because we've been talking about this in, in around Silicon Valley for forever now, I feel. I, I'm surprised by the legs of this trend. I mean, it has been gone on so long that a, a marketing firm is now also in the business and so forth. Do we think that this is going to maintain its momentum through a downturn or will D2C take a bit of a thrashing if things get a bit worse? So I'm trying to figure out like where this, this niche will, will, will land. Yeah. I'm I'm gener- generally a bear on the category, um, I'm maybe old school, old fashioned, old school. Uh, but it comes back to the point that Kate you're trying to make, which mm-hmm. is, uh, it comes down to the product, and a lot of these are shoddy products, and hopefully that company thing 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 testing thing testing can uh, uh, you know bring out the best products that are resemble the products that we used to like and buy and be customers of for for many decades. You know, like. Those Nike tennis shoes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also, I think Hunter Walk uh, put money into the three hundred thousand dollar round, and Hunter Walk is cool, so I'm gonna give him a shout. Yeah, out. and he Hunter Walk had originally written about this company like a year ago, and I think after he wrote about them, they got quite a following. So you know, he he has enough fans that he was able to attract a lot of people to it. Um, the thing is, the one thing I will say about thing testing that I don't love is that I don't feel like she gave any hot takes, and I I kind of want. I want like a yes or no. I want like a, did you love this or did yeah. you not love this? She's uh, sort of PC about the she products. She is. And yeah. I, I think for me, it's like, I, I really want someone to be like red light, green light for this yeah, DZ product. Yeah, like the product. wire cutter CNET for something, right? Yeah. Like, well, Rotten Tomatoes will give you a splat as opposed to a, a certified fresh rating, right? So, so I would they, encourage her to be more like that. Yeah. yeah. More opinionated, right? Yeah. Yeah. Just a little bit more. I think, I mean, she may be a little concerned about offend, offending brands because she does have such a young, this is only a a project she's been doing for about 18 months and she left her job like six months ago to do this full time. Her job was being a VC. She was a VC in London. Um, but uh, I think um, eh, don't worry about upsetting the brands. I mean, like I can't, we can't worry about that. Right. Like she's kind of similar now in our boat. She's, 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 she's analyzing companies. Yeah, yeah. She's analyzing companies in these like kind of bite-sized formats as Instagram captions, which I think is a great idea in this day and age when like teenagers get their news off Instagram, which is scary, what? but true. Yeah. Yeah. I have a question for you guys. What's the, what's the best DTC brand out there or the most successful DTC company? I think away is 
probably one of the most successful. What do you think? Uh, the first word They're that came to mind was quip, but I don't know if that's at all the true. Toothbrush the toothbrush one? Brush, no, yeah. no I just, way. I just, I've seen the most of their ads. Which but is okay. Away has sold more than a million bags and is profitable company. Oh, that's the suitcase company. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. That's probably the one, yeah. And I have an Away suitcase and I love my my Away suitcase. We have, this has come up in the show a couple of times because <laughs> they, it is our it, example of a DDC brand that we like. It's, yeah. it's, they've done a great job. Yeah, so yeah, I think yeah. that's one of the best. I think also there was, luggage is just so shitty and they, they were able to really, I think the problem is a lot of these DDC brands are like, like, I mean, the cookware one, that new one, I just feel like there are so many. DDC cookware brands even already, but there are also a ton of great legacy cookware brands. Do we need all these DDC cookware brands? You know, that's a th- I mean, good question. In Skeptical. my kitchen, I've got so many pots and pans that I don't use because people just give you shit. Oh, we can't swear on the show. Dang it. I just get mine at like TJ Maxx. Yeah, I mean, sure. But I mean, do we need 18 more DDC brands to sell us a version of a good that we can get also at every single retail store and every single e-commerce store? I mean, I think your point about being a bear on the sector in general yeah. makes a lot of sense. I there's agree. Too I'm many a bear too. Players for not enough channels not enough efficient sales channels and not enough consumers who need that kind of quick turnover uh, in goods. But yeah. that, and just, uh, and Jin Lee or pattern is an exception to our rule actually of investing in DTC brands. Cause they're spitting out brands left and right, or they plan to. Yeah. So it's much different than say investing in one play. brand, yeah. which I agree. I am bearish to, I would not invest in one DTC brand because how far can one DTC brand scale? Man, this has been a spicy, spicy end to this week's equity. <laughs> um, but before we let Moon go, I have a, um, we did a little research into kind of where seed uh, rounds are going in around the U.S. for the last year, uh, looking at rounds that are um, like be around 200K and above, so reasonable size seed rounds. And um, I'm not surprised that like fintech really stood out as something where a lot of early stage money is going. And also like ag tech was interesting mm-hmm. and a lot of money going into real estate and cybersecurity. Um, are, are there sectors that we're missing that you're seeing a lot of good stuff from? We should have an eye out on because at I'm the curious seed stage. What's hot. Seed A because early. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a uh, uh, fintech. Yeah, with the rails that are being laid with companies like Plaid and Stripe, like you can just build on top of. So that makes sense. Uh, cyber, the world is a scary place, so that makes sense. Uh, yeah, I'm actually surprised that you don't. There's not much more consumer. I guess it's all consumer these days is all just uh, DTC. DTC. I, was about to say, <laughs> I think we just covered. We what about but. mental health? Uh, I feel like that's a that's a category. Because I'm hearing so much about early stage mental health. Tell tell me about that. Oh, I mean, I just feel like left and right when I meet with VCs, they're like, "Oh, we're, we're trying to make either we're trying to make a mental wellness investment, or we've made like five. Like it's yeah. just we made one. What was the company? It's called Modern Health. Okay, yeah, heard uh, of it. Yeah, what, what is that moment? Uh, it's an emotional well being platform uh, that is offered to employers. Uh, large employers are adopting it uh, like crazy because people. It's it's a the blend between. You have all the way from the Calm Headspace app mm-hmm. to access to a marketplace of therapists. And in the middle is the chat-based video, FaceTime with the therapist from, yeah. And employers offer it. So we at Kleiner Perkins offer it to our employees. And you start out with a uh, personal assessment of how you're doing. And then you can be funneled into the, hey, just use the app and you're a happy person. You, all you need is meditation. And hey, you actually should chat with someone online or do a video. Or you really need to go see someone. B2B wellness is the future. B2B wellness, because that's how healthcare will look in 2029. Anyways, we are out of time. Can we just wrap? All right. Well, it was so great to have you, Moon. Thanks for visiting. And Alex, I'll see you next week. Good to be back. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Thank you. 
can find us on Twitter at Alex and at Kate Clark Tweets, or you can email us at equitypod at techcrunch.com. And we are now on YouTube. Watch the full episode on the TechCrunch YouTube page. And if you really want to support the show, please rate us and review us on iTunes. And you can also subscribe to our podcast on Spotify and all the other places where you get podcasts. And a big thank you to our producer, Christopher Gates, our executive producer, Henry Pickovet, and we will see you all right here next week.